Yeah, the first thing I do is I go on mute and I exclaim <laughs> and and then I go off on mute and I say, son of a bitch, why are we talking about this again? Welcome to 33 Tangents, a weekly podcast featuring a rotating panel of co-hosts that all work together in the same company, but live in different areas of the world. The discussions cover a wide variety of topics from digital analytics to working remotely to current happenings in business and technology. Our regular day-to-day conversations often go off in various directions, and the goal of this podcast is to share our ideas and find new ways to engage with others. Do you guys so what notice up, my uh, my my lack of fish tank? I sold it. It's a sad day. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were all into it. You knew the I mean, local it's... suppliers. You knew the lingo. You knew. I mean, you were. Well, none of that. It. None of that's changed. I still know all of that, but yeah, it was just it was getting too much, you know. I, I don't. That's know. how. Yeah, I don't that's how life goes, tank. you know. You you know everything. Everything has a season, right? So you're saying buy a a pet the minute the pet becomes a bird, you you, you, uh, abandon it? No, the pets are fine. Um, You found a good home home for it? Yeah, I found a forever home. Did you hear about that that lady that um, had this Instagram following about how she was going to adopt this Chinese um, boy and then raised all of this money for it, ended up adopting him. Um, the poor boy had, um, you know, he had a disability. They knew about this beforehand. And then he's like three years old and they rehomed him like for real, like, and, and they advertised it to all of their, their following about how they've now found his forever home. Oh yeah. I did yeah. see that. Yeah, I, yeah, you gotta send me a link to that. I did not see that. True story. Yeah. So apparently, um, when you adopt kids, it's not forever. You because you because you know you're just temporarily in charge. Yeah. So I don't know if I should out this, but um, so my son's adopted. My oldest son, who is will turn eighteen shortly, um, and. It was it was not a planned adoption. Um, his the adoptive parents that were um, matched with with him got down to Louisiana. I don't know what their expectations were, but whatever it was was not matched, and they left. And uh, the adoption agency called us up and said, "Hey, we have this this baby boy. He was just born. The adoptive parents have left the state. Um, would you be interested in coming and getting getting him?" Oh wow! I did not know that. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, some heavy stuff to start the uh, podcast yeah. this morning. <clears throat> so I um, I learned that about you a long time ago, and I thought it was super admirable, Jason, uh, that you did that. So public, public love affection happening right now. <laughs> well, it turned out amazingly well, so. Is he... Um, still expected to start school this fall? Like what's the latest with all of the quarantine stuff and where he's planning on playing yeah. soccer? 
they had a conference call on Monday, which he would not let me listen to, um, which frustrated me. I wanted to hear it with his, uh, with his team. And, um, the, so he, he's, um, I, I can't remember the associate, the athletic association that, that, uh, governs his school. Um, but they have delayed, um, sports until the spring. So he was supposed to start their season season was supposed to start in August and it's been delayed till the spring. Um, the last that they heard on this conference call on Monday is they're still expecting to have class in person starting in September. Um, but that is um, obviously open to, to change. But that's the plan for now is he's going to attend school in person starting in September. But um, all sports activities have been delayed until uh, the spring. Yeah. Well, that's too bad. Um, but yeah. still pretty freaking exciting. And I said freaking to avoid the uh, the rating. Uh, the that's e. not my... Unfortunately, that's not my normal vocabulary, but I appreciate <laughs> it. Um, Jim appreciates it. The the having having the e not on our episodes, I think, expands our uh, our our viewer listener base. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but I do I do I think it's it's still pretty awesome that he's he's got that opportunity. So, yeah. Anyways, that'd be cool. It would be cool, Jim. We've met. Wait, did we lose Brian or was that just me? I think it may have been Brian because I was thinking the same thing. Was that me? Yeah. But it's great. The, look at the the, the frozen and image. You guys all... That's actually pretty funny. Yeah. I, I got some <laughs> trip, man. Why is my bandwidth going in and out? Because, yeah, that was back. me. Um, I yeah. was trying to ask you about your, uh, your vacation because um, we're all jealous that you were on vacation. So as a result, I'm taking a vacation next week. But how was yours? <laughs> it was nice. It was it was really nice. Uh, a good week and a half with with the family. Um, you know, not just uh, the three of us, but but my extended family. We were uh, in Margate, New Jersey, for the first part, and then the second part went to Ocean City, New Jersey. Um, my wife's family has always gone to Margate. My family's always gone to Ocean City for for actually generations at this point so it, it was it was it was really nice to spend time with family spend time on the beach lots of time on the beach uh the italians definitely showing at this point so uh it was uh it was just it was nice fun and relaxing awesome. Wait, the, Ita the italian showing uh, the, did you see the tan the, the nice tan coming in yeah yeah i get this from my my father's mother yeah I feel yeah. I I feel like um, I I I'm not very good at the genealogy, and and our genealogy record is all messed up. But I feel like I have to go back and search it. So my my mom's side of the family is from northern Italy, like high up in the Alps, which I don't think has the nice southern Italian skin tone. But um, my 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 skin tone tends to uh, bronze up quite well, and my so. I take that back. So my mom's grandpa's side of the family is from the Alps, northern Italy, the, the Alp regions. Um, my my mom's mom's side of the family, um, the before they before they went to Wales, came from Sicily. So I think I have more Sicilian influence than I than I realize. Never go against the family, Brian. <laughs> that was my godfather. 
That's awesome. That was, a, that was seriously one of the worst Godfathers I've ever heard. Really? Yeah. I thought it was pretty. Have, have you watched? Have you seen Kramer's on Seinfeld? Yeah, but that's Kramer. <laughs> Fair enough. Like, you know. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, I don't. I don't have much uh, experience being a Godfather. Although I have a, uh, I have I have an uncle um, who uh, I think he thought he was in the mafia. Um, he 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 was uh, quite the. Uh, I I don't know what the East Coast Italians do, but the Utah Italians sit around in their driveway on. Do you know these old? Uh, outdoor chairs that have like cloth braiding but it's like this plasticky material and it's usually mm -hmm. white you know what i'm talking yes, about i know exactly what you're talking about yeah so the the utah italians sit around in their driveway outside their garage door in those chairs talking about how they're 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 tough and they're it's like hey, if anyone ever crosses us so that that was the, that was this side of the family and and his daughter got sent home from school once for wearing a skirt that was too short and he was going to go down there and show them what they were messing with i don't think anything ever happened they like to sit around and talk about it though yeah. the south philly <laughs> italians use those chairs in the winter to uh protect their parking spot after it snowed <laughs> So okay. people will dig out their spots, but like they're a lot of the streets in South Philly are really narrow. So the plow will come through and yeah. there's mounds of snow. So people will dig out their spot and then pop stick their, their lawn chair, chair out, That's stick awesome. the lawn chair out. Like this is mine. Like, I mean, it's, it's started fights. People come along and moving somebody else's chair to pull into a spot. Awesome. Yeah. It, awesome. You don't cross the savesies. The what? The savesies? Savesies. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Now that we've broken down the uh, regional differences of the uh, Italian influences on America, maybe next time we can talk about how they've bastardized the uh, Italian language uh, in American, which is has made it fun. You oh know, yeah. The 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 gabagools. Oh, gabagool. I've talked to my wife and my mother-in-law. I'm like, they're not real words. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 love, I love the Eastern United States dialect of, of Italian American. It's amazing. Sorry. And I mean, it's mostly, it comes from South Philly and New York. Yeah. Like th those are, you know, Boston was Irish. Um, I mean, New York and Philadelphia have like their Irish sides, but then they're heavily Italian. So the, the, the nonsense words, and I know uh, people come after me for calling them that, but to me, even as an Italian, they're nonsense words. They come from Philadelphia and New York. I love Example of a few nonsense words for me. Uh, Gabagool is one. Gabagool, uh, Gabagool, what does that mean? Capicola. Capicol. Capicol. You, you never watched The Sopranos? Unfortunately not. I really, mm. and then I tried to watch, start it like five years ago, and it is so dated like just the opening i'm just like uh i don't know if i can do this mm -hmm. um but yeah i i want to i maybe i should just force myself to do it because i think i would really enjoy it my favorite movie of all time hands down any movie is goodfellas like i love anything mm. about organized crime crime syndicates and and whatever and so yeah i'm sure i would enjoy the the uh 
The Sopranos. So. I think they I think they bring up some of um some of the Americanized words on Impractical Jokers. I know there's an episode where yeah. where I think Joe's talking about his guma. Mm-hmm. Right, his girlfriend or his mistress. Um and my grandpa, my grandpa always used to love uh, making the pasta fazool. <laughs> and then there's regat. Regat, yeah, regat's a good one. Yeah. Mozzarella. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I just we like poking the bear. We can well, go on. The one last thing before we, we go on, like I do love poking the bear with the sauce versus gravy debate. Did, I, I'll did just take people did, on walk away. Did you see my? Did you see when I brought that up on Twitter? I purposely. No, I think I missed that. I purposefully, I purposefully um, referred to it as gravy um, on on Twitter, and people went crazy on me. Like I've never heard of such a thing. You're making stuff up. I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm no, not. no. It's like, <laughs> I mean, it's a fierce fight. Mm-hmm. You, you say it wrong. You use the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's a fierce fight. Yeah, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> not, 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 not just my wife and my mother-in-law, but my my good friend too. Um, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, needle them along with it every now and then. So I don't know the regional differences, but I brought it up, Brian, for for your edification here. I brought it up on Twitter um, that I was having macaroni and gravy, um, and it it wasn't macaroni noodles. It was it was more of a and linguine noodle and some some tomato sauce. But in certain areas in the United States, and and in, in lots of areas in Italy. That is called macaroni and gravy. It doesn't matter what mm-hmm. the shape of the pasta is. It's it's macaroni, right? Is pasta and, and don't dare call it noodles. Don't call it noodles. Don't yeah. Don't it's it's macaroni. What about and, Can you call and it noodles? And the sauce is gravy. So I think Wait. there have been street fights about it. Mm-hmm. So like marinara or. Um, yeah, Alfredo gravy. and all of that stuff. That's gravy. just called gravy, aka gravy. Well, not all of it. Like it, there is, it, it's anything that's made with meat is gravy. Yeah. If yeah. there's no meat involved, it's typically called sauce. But a lot of times, people use just the blanket term gravy. So, yeah, yeah it, it there are some some distinctions there. But it's a fun fight when you when you uh, oh when yeah. You Oh yeah, <laughs> this could become a whole episode here. So yes, yeah. All right, one what are we here really talking, talking about? Well, no, 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 I mean, no, we've been one, talking one about fun thing, things. One, and, one, okay, now Brian, one Brian, last, yeah, one last thing. One last thing. I uh, studied Italian um, in college, and now whenever I go out to Italian restaurants, I always say things with like the, you know, like the the thick Rome accent, you know, and. Mm-hmm. My wife always just looks at me like I'm kind of crazy, you know. I can see like, that. Yeah. But do you guys do that too? Like, if you know how to pronounce it, you know, no. like you don't say it. Like you just say it like a straight. I I I I did try it once. Well, I tried it twice, and it's only worked in a couple places. So I I tried to order gabagool at Harmon's at the deli counter, and it it just didn't go well. Like they had no idea what I was talking about. Uh, but I did order gabagool at Caputo's Italian Deli in Salt Lake City, and smooth. <laughs> I got exactly what I need. I'm, I'm, I'm just gonna go back to ordering capicola. I'd like some capicola, please. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Um, so by the way, by the way, now I'm starving. So 
sorry. Let's let's go. Let's get into the topic here. We'll get into the topic. Well, moving on from terms that matter and start fights. Oh, um, Jim has got a good. Segue. I got the segue going today. <laughs> um, I want to talk about metrics that matter. Uh, so we've touched on this a long, long time ago. Uh, it, it's been a while, so it's worth revisiting in in, in, in some form. You know, Brian tonight before I went on vacation, we were talking, and it, it, we were talking after we had a client call, and we were talking about how you know the, the, the need to have the conversation regularly about making sure that the metrics and dimensions and other data that you're collecting is what matters, not just just everything, not just noise, and because the the, the call we were on, um, the the client was going into about like they wanted. It was another session with them uh, where we got into, we want to just track all of these things. We want all of the data. And we, Bryant and I started working with them, mostly Bryant, about like, well, what here really matters? What are you really trying to get at with this? And most of the answers came back with, well, we would just like to have it. So we're like, okay, there's an implementation cost, there's a maintenance cost, and then there's the cost of just using the system of having all these met these metrics, these dimensions, and nobody knows if they really matter or not. And so I, I wanted a quick touch on like how we got here, and then why is this something that it's it's worth regularly discussing? And one of the reasons I think we got here is is due to you know the tag managers. I mean, if you think back to implementing analytics 10, 12 years ago, at the, you know, the advent of tag managers or even just before they came out, you were dealing with your development team. Your front end development team had to wire up the actual analytics on the page. So you needed some level of dev project depending upon the level of tagging that you wanted. Um, and then depending upon even if the, the data was available at that level, they had to bring in the backend folks to make the data available to the website. So tag managers such as Launch, GTM, and, and others have lowered the barrier, barriers that existed in years past uh, that made deploying new data collection rules difficult or expensive. You know, and when you wanted to collect something, you had to justify it because there was a very noticeable cost internally of having a pro project time spent on, on doing that. So now with tag managers, you have a lower implementation cost. There's still a cost, but it's much lower. So it's become much easier just to, to justify just the just one more thing. I just want to add this in. Can we just add that in? Um, and so what happens is, is you have people losing focus on the data that matters and becoming obsessed with, with tracking everything that's possible. Um, so it why does it seem like this seems to be a circular conversation at times? We, we have this all the time with folks and we have to remind them about like what really, really matters. Mm -hmm. Can I, I have a completely unpopular opinion. Go for um, it. And I think Stir it's the probably, <laughs> I think it's probably entirely unfair, but I do think a lot of decisions that have been made specifically by analytics vendors have been in order to protect their market share. And not necessarily in made in decisions that were best for their customers. 
And, and I think a lot of these decisions around collecting more data, specifically from some of the bigger vendors in the space have been a direct response to others in the space that say, and come out on market and say, why make decisions on what you collect? Just collect everything with our platform. And when and when they see when they see businesses going in that direction now as a business, we need to make decisions to counteract that effect, even though it may not be what's best for for our customers. It's we need to protect our our market share. So I think it goes I think it goes beyond a level of just the practitioners making decisions or businesses making decisions about what to collect. I think collectively we need to hold the. Um, the vendors in the space accountable as well because they have huge influence directly and indirectly over what businesses are, are doing and i think it's a big it's a big component that we don't really talk about much yeah i think it's it's the evolution of like you're saying the marketplace but i also think it's um the evolution of the uneducated people, and I'm not saying uneducated in general, but uneducated about marketing technology that are now in decisions over um, data and, and whatnot. They don't have a background in data or analytics, and sometimes they're, they're put into these roles. And their answer to this type of a question is, well, I need every data point because I don't know what I don't need. Therefore, I'm going to collect everything that I possibly can in the attempt to yeah. capture it all. It's it's like the the difference of like hunting with a shotgun versus a sniper rifle, right? And and everybody is moving towards, I shouldn't say everybody, I, I try to avoid using absolutes, but so many companies are, are trying to use that as the approach. And I also think about a decade ago, back when the, the, the big, um, phrase in the industry was big data. Um, you know, if you guys remember that, like everything was big data, this and big data, that, um, that term started to become bastardized and used in a way where it's like big data actually means lots of data. And now lots of data means artificial intelligence and machine learning. Like that's the, that's the words that are being used now. And they're like, Oh, well, if I, if I have it all, then, you know, great. Like the machines are going to learn it for me. But the reality of, of what, you know, the challenge that Jim brought up is, is center and forefront, right? It still takes yeah. humans, um, which are costly and, um, you know, time intense to wire that up, to collect it. Mm -hmm. And then one final thought here uh, before I, I pass the mic back, so to speak, is that um, a lot of these companies don't even hold that data for long enough that it's even worthwhile before they start to retool or rethink it. And so it's just this cycle of, well, I want all of this data. And then a few months later they change it. And it's like, well, you don't even have enough data to really do anything with it. So. Yeah. You, you, and you bring up some really good points. And, and in fact, I, one of the things that you mentioned got me thinking about one of the challenges is this bifurcation of ownership of, of digital marketing data. If we can kind of lump that all, all together in that what, what you described is an approach that I see aligning with um, IT or engineering owning analytics, because they're coming from a world where, we don't know, just collect everything, and then we'll send it over to our BI team to process the data. That has yeah. been historically how analytics works, and it's a very proven model. Um, what I think a lot of people don't understand, or at least don't talk about when it comes to what we 
commonly referred to as digital analytics is companies like Google, com companies like Adobe, they've put incredible thought process into designing their platforms to make the job of the analyst, I don't want to say easier, but more efficient in some ways. And, and by that, I mean, for a traditional analyst, uh, I think it's been been said that 60 to 70% of their time is in data preparation. So data cleaning, data munging, data combining, data organization. Um, and that's not necessarily the case when you're dealing with, with enterprise tools for digital data like Adobe, like GA. Um, they've taken a lot of that out of your hands through their thought process and how they've developed the platform. A lot of that processing of the data has been done for you. And that's where I see there being a major disconnect. And, and what, what is happening is that organizations don't necessarily understand that. When a company buys, let's, let's just pick Adobe because it's the leader right now in the digital data space. Um, when a company purchases Adobe, I think a lot of companies don't realize that what they're purchasing is that efficiency that 60 to 70 percent savings on data preparation mm -hmm. and a lot of times they then hand it over to their engineering teams to own the engineering teams come from a completely different perspective and they're like this doesn't make sense to us we're just going to collect everything because that's what we do because then we hand it to our bi team that spends 70 percent of their time to munge and organize and clean data and you completely lose that efficiency that you just purchased so i think a big part of what we're seeing in this collect everything um, is coming from, sure, both a lack of understanding of, of what's available in the space and how different types of analysis are done. Um, but I think a, a huge part of it is lack of ownership in the right place. That we're, we're often giving ownership of marketing and digital data to organizations that are not properly positioned to, to own analytics. And then this goes back to something that I've been been like pounding on forever is that for most organizations, digital data still sits at the kids' table. We, we don't have a place at the executive table. And oftentimes we then are kind of passed around. You know, one maybe one year we sit in engineering, maybe another year we sit in marketing, maybe another. And until that gap has been solved, I think we're constantly going to have this, this struggle with where are we making our data investments? What data are we capturing and how? Because everyone has different ideas and there's no ownership in the place that it, it should be step off soapbox for a minute yeah i think it's it's all very relevant and and to that point too the marketing team <clears throat> comes from a you know direction of i just need sales or i just need conversions and they don't have the wherewithal to think through what is it they're going to do from a marketing or advertising standpoint and then how do they want to segment the data once it's available? And so they trust the IT team um, in, in actually putting together that solution. And so there's that disconnect. And I think that that's where, where we as, as consultants in the industry or industry leaders add the most critical value is, you know, yeah, we've got technical expertise, we've got product expertise, but if we can add that, that you know, strategical thinking of like, you know, hey, think before you deploy or think before you even run the campaign, plan the campaign, plan the metrics that you think you're going to need in advance. Um, we can help kind of 
shift the thinking around a little bit and actually put it back on the marketers to own own it a little bit more than they do and, and be less reliant on others to provide them with those answers. Yeah, which leads me to probably my second very unpopular opinion, and that is that I, I think the digital data um, in lots of places is, is merely theater. And I can speak firsthand of this because I saw this when I worked client side. Um, I was running analytics for an online dating company. Um, I, I worked very hard to put together a complete story for our marketing team to say, here's how well your marketing efforts are performing, not only to get new potential customers to our site, but also how well are they signing up? But ultimately, what is their lifetime value? Are they generating revenue for the company? I wish I remembered the exact quote, but the, the director of marketing told me, it's not our job. We don't care. Our job is to dump potential customers on landing pages and convert them to registered members. The more registered members we create, that's what we're graded on. That's what, that's what our goal is. I'm like, but if those registered members never subscribe, we never make money as a business and we're failing. They don't care. That's not what they're compensated on. Right. And so to them, I, and maybe they don't see it as theater, but I see it as theater, right? It's like, we're just using the numbers to capture and report on what, we think we need to be doing without stepping back and saying, yeah, but how is this impacting what every business in this world is in business to do? And that is to make money. Yeah. Yeah. I spent some time um, while I was at Adobe talking quite a bit to the product management team and how they de make decisions. Um, and, and every decision make, Know, is is grounded you know this is you know this is what they say every decision that they make about features that they're going to release and whatnot is grounded in what the revenue impact is um and and whether or not that's true in application in every decision i think the fact that so many of the people there say that at least it's embedded culturally enough to where they're thinking about it and i think that that so many companies um really compartmentalize that conversion funnel or the overall customer journey so much so that they create these incentives and compensation plans that are too short-sighted. Um, you know, and, and using that example that you have from the dating site, right? It, if, if they're comped on just getting new registrations, um, you know, who's to say they, they wouldn't go out there and just rig that system to go you know, create bots to create accounts for them, right? I mean, I'm, I'm, not, saying that, I'm, I'm not saying that's never happened or that it has happened, but uh, I'm, I'm guessing that if you incentivize people to, to do things, they're going to game that system and rig it. And um, you might have said something while you're coughing, but um, yeah. I, so, said Wells, I said Wells Fargo. Yeah, they got, yeah Wells exactly. Fargo got busted for that, right? Creating fake accounts to hit. Not stores. just Wells Fargo, but other banks too, right? And that's because the incentive was opening new accounts, not like anything beyond that. So again, I, it, I, I really like what you said though too, that the data is at the kids table because ultimately, you know, it, it needs to come at an executive level and come down that, yes, you are incentivized here off of this, this one compartment of the journey. Um, but we have this this massive business and it is tied to revenue. And here's how and why your piece is tied to revenue. And if we see that these metrics are actually screwing up the others, then you know, we need to actually make some changes about those incentives. 
Yeah, 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 totally agree. Um, so let, let's kind of take it back because I, I'm interested in how you guys look at it from a consulting perspective because I think if a customer is truly coming to you from a place of, of, of thinking about how we can maximize value and they say something like, hey, Brian, um, we don't know what we want to capture. So what's the harm in just capturing everything? Um, what what do you say to them? What do you do to guide them? Because maybe there isn't a harm, but maybe there is a huge cost. Like I, you know, from, from their perspective, I think a lot of times they are coming from a place of good where they just don't, they don't know. And they're saying the best way to ensure that we have what we need is let's just capture every possible click. Why, what can be the downside to that? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the approach I've taken um, with this client as well as others throughout my career is, is I, I will push back and ask them what do information. So in the, in the example that really spurred this on from Gemini, um, the, the request was tracking clicks that ultimately will lead to the same outcome, but they're slightly different on a page um, in location. So the real estate was a little bit different. And, and my question back, will you do if the data says one thing or another? And there wasn't, there was an answer. And the answer was essentially, well, we would emphasize the other one more. And, and to me, it's like, well, it them to go. Um, and they're ultimately doing what you want them to do. Does it matter if one is more than another? And isn't that more of an application of testing and optimization as opposed to data collection for analytics? And that's, that's where we ended up going with that. But, but the, the tactic to use in those situations is really um, to push them to ask them, what is the action that will be taken? What decision is dependent on that data? And how will you, how will you differentiate if the data looks one way or another? So before you even get to the point of solutioning it or tagging it, you're, you're making them, you're forcing them to take ownership by why they need it and how they need it. And that, that oftentimes will slow them down or, make them justify, which if, if it's justified, great, let's do it. Yeah. And, and I really like that approach because it forces them to your point to prioritize how, how they're going to use the data. And, you know, maybe in a perfect scenario, there, there isn't a downside to just having everything available, but I, I think we don't live in a, a world of uh, limited, unlimited resources. Uh, especially in digital, you know, teams have historically been understaffed. And I, for some reason, the past few weeks, I, I keep bringing up the Avinash 90-10 rule that he came out with in like, what, 2004 or five, something like that, where if you spend $10 on software, you should be spending $90 for on people to, to use that software. That's never been in anywhere close to being um, yeah. in, in proportion and, and teams have been constantly understaffed. So knowing that that's the case, we have to make decisions um, because there's a, and I think Jim, you mentioned it in the intro, there's a maintenance cost, right? Like every time you buy something new, you add something new, you're committing to maintaining that. If not, it's going to fall into disrepair very quickly and the data is going to be unusable anyway. Um, I think more more visual is that we just don't have enough time to to look at everything. So um, by collecting more and more, you're asking a very limited group of resources to do even more with less, and you're putting more overhead and more burden on them. So it's not necessarily bad to have more data, but it's bad to say we need more data and just 
ignore the fact that we we have very limited resources. So I one of the things that we've seen companies struggle with is they've captured a lot of amazing data. And in fact, they've done a great job maintaining that data. But there's so much data there that the one analyst they have on staff simply doesn't have enough time to wade through it all to answer even some of the most basic questions. So in those scenarios, it's oftentimes where less is more. We may have less data, but we have data that we can actually make decisions off of um, and, and make informed decision off of because it's something we can actually handle with the very limited resources that we have available to us. Yeah, I agree. It's another thought um, around that, making decisions with less data. Um, I think in, uh, I'll speak for myself um, that sometimes I find myself not necessarily wanting to do an analysis. So I'll, you know, trick myself, not, and this is a subconscious thing, so I'm not saying I actively do this, but but my brain will trick myself into thinking I need more data before I can do it. Yes, I don't have to do that analysis right now. I can kick that can down the road and say, well, sorry, we need more data. And I think that that behavior also exhibits here and, and also spins up the cycle of needing more and needing more. And and the other thing that I've really tried to do is, is avoid that for myself and say, okay, if, if I'm doing work for us here at 33 Sticks or if I'm doing work for a client, then I need to use what data, what information I have available to make that decision or to do that analysis. And if during that analysis, I find out that there's something significant missing that doesn't, that shouldn't stop me from completing the, the analysis I've done, but it should be something I bring up in a review and that I state, here's what I was able to answer. Um, and, and here's my recommendation how to move forward with it. Additionally, I found some other areas I'd recommend that we go ahead and implement more so that we can get more data behind that. It, it just came up with a client uh, recently that we're working with. Um, I was doing some analysis on, you know, form completion rates and new, new member registrations and I can give them starts and completes, but their forms are, you know, three to four pages long. And so whatever happens in between there, we don't know. And so we've got that data, we've got the baseline now in which we can go through and we can show here's your completion rates and we can segment it by marketing and everything else that's done. Um, and now we've implemented some additional tracking and we can, we can do some analysis, but what are your guys' thoughts on that around, you know, just that human nature of, not wanting to do your job. Like, I mean, I'll just tell it how well, it is. Like, like sometimes we wake up and we're like, nah. That may be a little unfair, that. but yeah. yeah. I, I don't think it's that. I, I've seen that paralysis happen many times on the implementation side. And Jason, you and I were talking about it in another context maybe about two weeks ago. You know, the whole idea of thrashing right before a project is supposed to be complete. So many times, you know, when someone is implementing analytics fresh, whether it's a vendor transition or new site or whatever, there's that period right before the end of the project where you're supposed to call it done, where everyone in, whether they panic or they hit a paralysis where they don't want to call it done. So that's where you get the, you, you start to see scope creep or you start to see just the one more item or it's, we need all these other things because once you call the implementation done, people are expecting that 
some kind of insight is going to be delivered. Now, granted, a tangent to this is, is the implementation is never done. You're constantly maintaining it and growing it, maturing it, and, you know, ensuring that it's working. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about like the actual project of implementing it and moving it toward a productionized state. You hit that paralysis because, yeah, if I call this done, people are expecting stuff from it. So if I keep saying I'm missing this or I'm missing that, it's not done. So it's not that I don't want to do my job. It's maybe a fear of not. It's a fear of shipping. It's a fear so, of shipping yeah, right? it's that. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that fear of shipping come, comes into play. And, and I also think that there's some misinformation that has been seeded into our, I'll, I'll just kind of focus on our digital analytics space. And I don't know if it's from thought leaders in our industry. It, it's definitely from vendors. No, it's 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 from sales organizations within vendors. Yes, there you go. Yeah, yeah. That have sold it's the so line. easy. You can you can implement anything right. so quickly, yeah. so easy. They, they've, they've sold the lie that analysis is easy. And it's not. <laughs> Doing proper data analysis is incredibly difficult. And I think it's important that we accept that fact. Um, and because we've sold this lie that it's easy. Uh, I think a lot of analysts that have come up through digital analytics, rather than coming up through traditional data analysis, get frustrated when it's not easy, and then they blame the data. Well, the data is incomplete. The data is is has some errors in it. The data is not organized correctly. I can't do the analysis. That is analysis, right? Like fixing all that and still coming up with some kind of insights because of all that in spite of all that, that is analysis. If it's not, then you're just a reporter, right? You're just taking the data and you're reporting it, but we're not hired to be reporters. We're not hired to just put a fancy graph on data that's already there. We've been hired to do the really, really hard work of analysis and the fact that the data is incomplete, that the data is messy, that the data is dirty, that that is the job of analysis and we need to be open speaking about it and reversing the lie that analysis is easy it's not it's incredibly incredibly difficult but jason all i want are but but jason all i want are, are quick wins i just need some quick wins I, I can get you some low-hanging fruit on that but let's Give not boil some more quick wins Let's not try to borrow yeah. those. No, and, and I'm I'm saying that because that is the fallacy. Yeah. It's like yeah. we're gonna implement it and we're gonna get some quick wins and then we can get going on the next thing and then we'll get quick wins there. And it's like, why why is everything quick? Why is everything you know everything's quick. 101? You know, everything's, like everything's it's quick because for most companies, especially in the space that we deal in, everything is quarter based. Everything is yeah. beholden to Wall Street, which is quarterly earnings. So, and, and honestly, that's why the job of a, of a consultant is really, really challenging because we have to balance both of those things. If we were brought in just to be pure analysts, that would be hard in and of itself, but we're, we're brought in to solve problems. And part of that is doing analysis, which is really, really hard. But the other part of that is solving problems. And so in order to solve those problems, we have to understand that there are political pressures. There are financial pressures. So we can't just say, well, analysis is really hard. Let us focus on that. We also have to help our customers navigate those tricky waters of they are they are beholden to quarterly earnings and they are beholden to quick wins because yeah. not because it's what is ideal from an insights perspective, but it's because what they're driven to because of 
what they have to do from a performance standpoint every quarter, which flows down to the most entry level employee. Everything is what's why we have, you know, quarterly business objectives and everything is on a quarter basis because we're focused on this quarter and then we'll focus on next quarter because that's what pumps up our stock price, which makes us more valuable, which allows us to keep doing business. That's a whole other conversation, but I do think it is a huge driver in, in a lot of these, a lot of these discussions. So, but it's probably also a good discussion to have as an analytics manager, right? Because as an analytics manager, and by the way, as I've been going back and listening to these episodes, uh, two things that I do that bug the crap out of me is I say, right a lot with an upward inflection and I like mess with my like hair a lot. So I'm going to try to not do that. Um, right. But, right. Uh, right. Right. As, as an analytics manager, we could be very easily um, put into that bucket of, well, we're just going to look at things from a data perspective. Um, but but that probably limits our value. Sure, we need to look at things from a, a data perspective, but we also need to navigate those political waters. And, and you know, I know we're kind of making a joke of, of quick wins, but those are true pressures that people in the organization are under. And we don't want to help necessarily continue that um, short-term view, but we also have to be um, a little bit sympathetic with the fact that sure, marketing is, is beholden to hitting certain numbers every quarter. So how do we make that balance? And it's tough, you know, it, it, it's, it's really tough. I think we've completely wandered off of the main premise, but I think it's, it's still a valuable uh, conversation nonetheless. No, I, I think it's good because it was a broad question about like, um, or a broad statement rather about, you know, things that matter and why do people or what, why do folks look to, to just track everything or capture everything or have all of, all of the data. Um, so looking through my notes here and seeing what other questions I kind of had you know, so we could start to, 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 to wrap things up here. Um, you know, I, I know we just talked about like, you know, the, the Wall Street demands of quarterly reporting, earnings, all of that drives a lot of this. But that aside, what are some of the things that people can do to keep focused on what matters and that instead of veering off into the thought process of just needing needing everything? So I have a really simple one. Um, and that it's, if you want to just be completely um, self-serving and you want to ensure the safety of your job long-term, um, you want to focus your work on revenue. <laughs> and, and I think, you know, if you're, you're in a situation where we're, we're being beholden to capturing all this data and vanity metrics and blah, 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 ask yourself the question, what am I doing that's helping the company make more revenue? Um, and use that as a filter to help determine what we're going to capture and how we're going to use it. We only have to look at this current uh, kind of environment that we're in. And I'm sure that all of us have friends. If, if, if you shake your head, no, that you don't, then I would be shocked that have been let go from companies that were in analytics capacities. Um, and the fact is, is that I have been shocked by some of the, the movement that have been made by companies to slash analytics teams that have been 
in a prime position to help them not only survive this current challenge, but to take advantage of the opportunity to make more money, they're gone. And the only thing that I've thought about is that either they didn't do a good enough job in helping show how they're helping the company make more money or the company is just completely short-sighted and they're just slashing costs to slash costs. But as a way of self-perseverance, if in your role as an analytics manager, as an implementer, whatever it is, if you can tie what you're doing to helping the company make more informed decisions to make more money, I think that puts you in a place to be more um, secure in, in your employment. And your question just, uh, your response made me think of a question specifically for Bryant. So, um, you know, Jason, it, it, your response, it, let's be honest, it requires someone having some thought around what they're doing. You know, th there are times where, lack of a better term, people are just kind of going on autopilot with, with, their, with their job. So, Bryant, how do you keep your temper under wraps where when you describe, when you get a question about, can we get this data? And it has no revenue or any kind of major major metric. It's again, it's a it's not even a vanity metric. It's it, it's the most basic of things. And you explain multiple times, like it's just, it provides no value. How do you keep your well, first of all, I say, yeah, the first thing I do is I go on mute and I exclaim <laughs> and, and then I go off on mute and I say, son of a bitch, why are we talking about this again? No, I don't really do that. No, I, it's, it's similar. Like that's my job, right? I mean, um, it's like a psychologist or counselor that hears about this person that comes in that continually has, um, you know, these same problem behavioral problems that get him fired from a job. And I'm not talking about myself here, guys. I don't have behavioral problems that get me fired. But I'm saying like you you hear, if you're a counselor, you always hear this the, the same problem from the same person that isn't fixing it. So how does that counselor not eventually just go nuts and tell the guy, you know, hey, you're you're crazy. Just fix your fix your behaviors and it'll all be done. It's the same for us. We hear the same problem from different companies. And it's our job to tell them in a professional way or to push them in a professional way to think differently about it and to, to care about it in a different way. And I'm actually in the process right now of writing something, um, you know, around kind of a, an analytics handbook. And, and one of the things that I'm writing about are the ways to think about variables and the ways to think about metrics. And, um, you know, there's been so many people that have written about key performance and indicators, right? You can look up key performance indicators and you'll find everybody says this, that, and the other around it, but, but it does come back to that. What is important to the business? What are the metrics? And I'm not talking about all of them, but at most five, usually it should be targeting around three, but in that three to five range, that if you're looking at that metric tells you in an, in an instant, whether or not the business is healthy or not. Everything else should ladder up to those three or five, everything else that you do. Um, and, and that should be set from the CEO that this is what's important to our business, revenue, new customers, and retaining of customers, right? Those are the three things. And if you can't justify your activity to those three things, then 
you know, you A, shouldn't be measuring it or need to really explain to your boss and their boss's boss why investment's going to be made into that. QR uh, up here or maybe up here. Or, uh, you were right north, the first time. Up here. Yeah. Up here. Our our uh, our North Star metric episode with John. That was a good discussion. But you're you're right, right? Like, damn it, I said it right. Uh, you're you're right. Um, <laughs> but that takes a huge investment, and you're asking people to actually care about their job. And I and and I and I believe that that's another component of it is that. For, for too many people and in analytics, especially we're, we're just going through the motions. And in order to get to that point, we have to care about what we do. And that takes time investing in the companies that we work for and understanding what's important to us. What are those key metrics, that North Star metric that drives our business and using that as a guide to determine what we do. But unfortunately, we're, we're, we're so siloed and we're so beholden again to quarterly goals that may or may not even align with that, that I'm making decisions while this is what my boss wants me to do. And this is what my bonus is based on, even if it has nothing to do with the performance of, of the company. So I'm not kind of, I don't know the word you use, Jim, to to kick this this portion off, but you, it requires you to have a bit of a backbone and and to make an investment and in actually caring about what you do and not just going through the motions. Yeah. You made me think of something else. Oh, go go ahead, Jim. I was just I've gonna say you uh, you would make a better counselor than I. Um, just purely for the fact that like having the same conversations with me after a while really starts to grate on my nerves. Like I, I slowly <laughs> start to lose my patience. Yeah. I can attest to that Jim Grim has said that to me. If I have to have this conversation one more time. <laughs> so, so uh, you made me think of something else too, Jason, where you said, if, you know, if you want to be totally self-serving, you think about how you're making money for the company. I think there's a second component to that. And, and that is, how are you doing the customer the right thing? Either, you know, not necessarily customer service, but if your job is to um, sell more product, um, to customers, how are you doing that in the way that's right for the customer? If you keep the customer in mind and revenue in mind, I, those are the two factors that will most likely keep your job secure above anything else, right? Pleasing your boss only gets so far because your boss can move on. Mm -hmm. um, and pleasing your employees only gets you so far because, you know, they're, they're your employees, right? So yeah. what's right for the customer and what's right for revenue? It sounds. It seems so simple, yet so few businesses and and organizations focus on on doing that. And it is it is a long term game. Um, and I think unfortunately, uh, most people are are rewarded on on short term. And we see it. And I don't want to bash sales, but we see it in sales all the time where they're selling what's best for their organization that quarter because that's what's going to be best for them this quarter. Even if they know deep down that maybe a year from now it means that this is horrible for the client. We actually lose the client. They don't care because they're probably off to the next thing. So I don't know how you balance that. I don't know how you balance sustainability with doing what's best for the customer. I choose to believe that people and organizations that do that over the long term win, but maybe that's just me believing in karma will, will pay off in the end. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, well, Jim. Oh, it no, does seem quite cliche to say that too around like do what's right for the customer and revenue. But like I, it, 
it's cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. And, um, and, and just keep that in mind. That the, I thought of another thing, and that is just don't be a jerk too. <laughs> like that'll help you keep your job in a lot of cases, right? <laughs> you know, um, unfortunately, Jim and I, we, you know, we're jerks to each other all the time. And maybe one day it's going to come and bite us in the ass, but, you know, we're good. Brian's going to get us an E rating for this episode. It, isn't it cliche to say it's a cliche for a reason? It is cliche. <laughs> Can you. Do you mind double clicking into what you mean with that? Let's put a pin in it. We'll, we'll follow up on that later. Let's circle back. Let's take this one offline. <laughs> cool. Well, this was a good one. Uh, lots of fun. It's, it, it feels good to be uh, back in the podcast studio again. Yeah, yeah. It's been a, it's been a few weeks, so it's good to uh, good to catch up. And uh, I, I do want to call out that. I, I know these episodes are long form. We really like doing the long form episodes. We appreciate everyone that, that listens and they are absolutely packed with value. Um, we also understand that people's time is limited and there's lots of options. So one of the things that we've been doing is uh, going back and as, as we've come up with this video format that Jim has now published, which is awesome, by the way, uh, we've been going back and going through some of these episodes and scrubbing out three to four, maybe five minute clips um, and have started publishing those on our YouTube channel. So if you don't have time to watch the full episode, um, hopefully we can pull some some really valuable clips out. And uh, if some of these shorter term clips get you interested, we'll also make sure they're linked up to the parent episode if you want to go back and and watch the whole thing. So just a little note um, of a new offering that we have out there. Well, if that is it, we'll go ahead and wrap up for now and uh, talk to everybody later. See you guys. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of 33 Tangents. If you enjoyed what you heard, please rate and review the show on your favorite podcast aggregator so others can find us. If you would like to reach us, you can do so by emailing podcast at 33sticks.com or on the web at 33tangents.33sticks.com. 33 Tangents is a production of 33 Sticks, an analytics boutique.